everyone, I'm Petrus and welcome to Worldview. Worldview is a podcast where we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. If you've watched some of our content so far and enjoyed it, please consider liking this video, subscribing and donating on Patreon. Today we're talking with Dr. Stephen Davies. He is a historian, he's graduated from St. Andrews University in Scotland and gained his PhD in 1984. He's the head of education at IEA and before that served as program officer at the Institute of Humane Studies at George Mason University in Virginia. He has authored several books, including Empiricism and History, and was a co-editor of the Dictionary of Conservative Thought and Libertarian. Sorry, Conservative and Libertarian Thought. Uh, Dr. Davies, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Good to be with you. Uh, I watched an extremely interesting and very, very, I almost want to say very positive, actually, and very enlightening uh, podcast uh, with, I think it was back in, um, actually, November in 2016, uh, where you had a chat with Dave Rubin on the Rubin Report. Right, um, yeah. And that was an extremely interesting time, actually, and such an interesting topic you talked about, because that was six days before the infamous 2016 uh, election uh, between uh, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And the discussion that you had there actually formed a lot of the questions and interesting things that I want to talk with you about today. And also just, you know, it's also a time for us, opportunity for us rather, to reflect um, on the views that we had then. Um, at the time, uh, Dave Rubin said that he really hoped that people would actually talk about the issues that, you know, the politics really go about or what people care about, the moderates care about, instead of the almost, you know, meme fest that happened in that election. And of course, in the, in the following years. So we'll definitely talk about that uh, in this podcast and focus on it. But first of all, I just want to hear from you. You have so much incredible experience and you've done so many talk shows. Do you have some interesting stories to share? Like, for example, you know, especially being, you know, active in the pre-Thatcher years, what was the situation that she re, uh, like inherited? And was it really as messy as it often portrayed? Or do you feel like a return of, of optimism or spirit during her tenure? Well, it definitely was as messy as it's often portrayed. It really was a bad state of affairs that Britain was in at that point. It was a period when a whole lot of problems, if you will, that had been gradually building up since the late 1950s, really, had come to a critical point ahead, if you will, a, a crisis in the literal sense of that word. Uh, and so, yes, it was. You had record numbers of days lost through strikes. Uh, we actually broke the record which had been set in 1910 uh, in 1978-9. Uh, it was a very bad time in all sorts of ways. There was a general feeling that Britain was drifting, essentially, uh, that the political class had lost control of things and that nobody really had any idea about how to address the problems the country had. And uh, Thatcher, regardless of whether you disagree with her or agree with her, she definitely had ideas about what to do. And I think what happened after she came to power uh, was that nobody was any longer in any doubt that the government had an idea about what it was trying to do. Uh, of course, some people were enraged by this and became passionately opposed to it. Others saw it as very positive, as I did at the time, uh, and generally welcomed it. But suddenly that sense of uh, ennui and drift that had been so powerful in the 70s just vanished. And that was very much down to her and her personal style, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I remember specifically from what we were taught in um, in history and also, you know, the videos that we saw about some of the uh, events that happened during her tenure, which is some of the most formative of Britain, at least of modern Britain, um, that you never had the idea that she had no idea what she was doing. Like she always had a plan and she was always going forward. So even though a lot of her policies might have been very controversial and some even to this day don't agree about it, there definitely was a sense of direction. Um, and that's also something that we 
almost want to say, I don't want to say we see it again, but we saw it to a certain degree where people praised Trump in the 2016 election specifically because that guy like said what he thought, you know, he was, he was straightforward about it. He was very mm. clear about what he said. Um, and you've mentioned something along those lines of this type of, you know, reoccurring of political, um, I want to say history repeating itself, but you call it political alignments. Um, could you give us a rundown of the political alignments uh, through like for the past, you know, past hundred years or maybe past right. 200 years? Uh, yeah. ending the present change? So thanks for this. I mean, what you're alluding to here is a, a thesis I've been putting forward for about 10 years that about every 40 years or so, the, the UK and also the US go through a realignment of politics. Now, what I mean by that is that during a realignment, uh, the big issue that politics is organized around, the thing that divides any country actually into two broad camps, changes, uh, goes from one thing to another. So if you look at the last hundred years, we've had, we're just finishing a fourth realignment in Britain now. Uh, back in 1885 um, before then in the mid-victorian era the two big issues that split politics were whether or not you favored reform of the british constitution and the system of british government and what view you took of the relationship between the church the established church and the state those are the two big things that really exercised people in the 1840s 50s and 60s and so on and then in 1886 there was a huge political crisis over the issue of irish home rule and what this marked was the emergence of two quite new aligning issues which produced a different kind of politics. One was the question of whether or not uh, Britain was to be a national state or an imperial state. And the question of Ireland was the one that provoked this, this big argument. Uh, and it was, of course, the imperial side that won that particular argument for the next 30, 40 years. And then the other issue which began to emerge at this time was the one we're very familiar with of uh, what role the state should play in the economy. And in the context of that time, it was whether or not Britain should stick with the classic policy of free trade, which it had followed since the 1840s, since 1846, uh, or move to a different kind of politics, rather more like the one that was uh, being followed at that time by Bismarck in Germany, basically. That was the kind of big alternative, Imperial mm -hmm. Germany's political economy. That, now that, that particular alignment lasted then until really the Great War. Uh, and then after, as we came out of the Great War, you had another major realignment in the 1920s. Now, what happened then was, of course, that the Liberal Party, which had been one of the two great parties of the state since the 1840s, really, or not before, collapsed and became a minor party. And it was replaced by the Labour Party as the major opposition to the Conservatives. And a big chunk of its voters went to the Tories, another big chunk went to the Labour Party, and there was a kind of rump of 10% who stuck with the Liberals. And what that reflected was two things. Firstly, that the question of economics, what kind of economy you had, became much sharper. And it now became quite clearly and explicitly a choice between socialism and capitalism. Uh, and it became the dominant issue in politics, which it hadn't been before. The other question of what kind of state Britain wanted to be, that uh, still was an issue, but it became much, much less important. Uh, and of course, politically, this was reflective of things like the rise of organized labor, the growth of the Labour Party and the trades union movement as a major social, cultural, political force in Britain. Uh, but also a number of other things, particularly a change in the nature of business and commerce, 
and the definitive and final decline of the landed aristocracy as a major cultural force. Yeah. Next change is one which I remember living through, which, which happened in the 1960s and 70s. And what happened then, really between about 1968 and 1983, really, was two things. The first was the emergence, re-emergence or reigniting of the argument about economics, because during the 1950s, that argument had not quite ended but it had become much much less vigorous because both parties came to agree on a kind of broad consensus about a mixed economy with a substantial role for government and that argument was suddenly reignited with the re-emergence of economic liberalism and a big argument about the need to have a less active and interventionist state than had been the case before along with the need for reforming british labor relations so that became another big issue and the other one that emerged at that time was the question of social liberalism versus social conservatism, which came out of the counterculture of the 1960s and the major reforms to things like the law about homosexuality, the abolition of the death penalty, uh, and the introduction of abortion, which had all been brought through by Roy Jenkins as Home Secretary in the 1960s. So that then became the other issue. So for the last 30 years, we've had a division in British politics and in American politics, and I dare say in the politics of many other countries as well, between social democrats who favor state intervention but are also socially liberal and free market conservatives who are pro-market but uh, morally and culturally conservative and authoritarian which is what you see with republicans and democrats in the us for example now as a consistent libertarian because i'm both a social liberal and an economic liberal uh, that meant that i was if you like I was up for bids between either side, really. Uh, conversely, the other group who were left out of that alignment were the consistent authoritarians, people who were both culturally conservative and socially authoritarian and economically interventionist. Uh, these were typically older working class voters in many cases, and they were also left out. Now, what's happening with people like Donald Trump uh, is that we're seeing the emergence in most developed democracies now of a kind of politics that combines economic interventionism um, with not so much cultural conservatism, although there is an element of that, as an emphasis upon identity and particularly uh, ethnic or national identity. And that's what the politics that I've called national collectivism. Uh, and this is the politics that Trump was articulating in a rather incoherent way, I have to say, uh, back in uh, 2016. And it's the politics which has clearly taken over the Republican Party. It's the politics of Marine Le Pen in France, uh, the AFD in Germany, uh, Salvini in Italy, the, the Swedish Democrats, you know, the country, you, it's easy to name countries where this kind of politics hasn't appeared. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And also, we've, I want to say you've mentioned some other countries as well. It's definitely something that we're seeing to a lesser degree in, in countries that aren't necessarily as politically well established like South Africa, because I mean, we've only been we've only existed around like 1994, pretty much since our new, yeah. you know, actually free elections. Um, and in that regard, we're still quite young on a lot of issues and still have a lot of core issues to, to center it around. But the way in which politics is conducted is very much, you know, I just want to say beginning to form towards these type of structures that we're seeing in Europe and, yeah. and, and North America. Um, or also because we're quite a free state, we're not as much influenced by the type of politics, even though there's a lot of economic influence um, from the East. Um, but in terms of the uh, previous uh, political alignment um, in the beginning of the 20th century, um, it, it could it have occurred 
so you've said it's, it occurred because of a several issues uh, along the lines of economic reforms and social reforms in terms of how what people were you know polit um, politically and sorry socially and economically aligned towards socially it kind of was a lot of influenced by uh, the relaxation of voting rights for example there was a case where people needed to have property to be able to vote they needed yeah. to be a certain age to vote and also you know there needed to be a certain gender to vote there was like a lot of lot of voting rights that got demolished in the start of the 20th century um, and then, you know, going into the 21st century, that affected a lot of it. So there was a lot more modern blue collar voters, you know, students, welfare recipient voters, that type of scenarios. With that case, what would you think would happen, or rather is an argument as it's being made by some people, that you could bring back these requirements? And then, for example, you would only be allowed to vote if you own property, or you would lose, you would lose the right to vote if you go on welfare, stuff like that, you know, economic um, requirements. Do you think that would change the political landscape drastically? Uh, actually, no, I don't. Uh, and I think that the story you're giving is getting the the causal relationship mixed up um, okay. in the wrong direction, basically. The implication of the kind of story you just mentioned there is that you had an expansion of the franchise and this led to a move to a focus on economic reform and a growth in the role of the state. So the argument is that you would not have had the growth in the state power that the Labour Party was advocating had it not been for the 1918 Act, Representation of the People Act, which created for the first time in British history universal suffrage, pretty much. I mean, it became universal in 1929 when women over 30, under 30 got the vote. So I think that's got it back to front. I think that actually um, the... Uh, the real cause of that shift to a more active and interventionist shape state were structural economic changes, structural changes in the way the economy works and in the kinds of class interests that they produced. And two in particular, one is the growth of organized labor as a major social force. Uh, and I think that the expansion of the franchise was a consequence of the growth of working class power, if you will, and importance in the economy, rather than a cause of it. Uh, and secondly, the, all, the other side of it is the growth in large multi-divisional business firms as the dominant kind of economic organization in a market economy. Because in the 19th century, up until really the 1890s, the predominant form of firm was the owner-managed company. But by the 1920s, you've clearly moved into the world we're familiar with of large multi-divisional joint stock companies, which are run by people who are not necessarily or even usually the owners of them. And that shift in the nature of capitalism produced large firms which actually favoured and often sought government intervention. Uh, it comes as much from the, that side as from the Labour side. And the other thing to say is that uh, there's a kind of notion which is very popular on what you might call the romantic left, that the reason why the voting pool expands is because of popular pressure. There are lots of people out there saying, we want to have a vote, we want to be involved in politics. Actually, I don't think that's true. I think the reason why the uh, franchise is extended dramatically and you move towards democratic politics is because ruling elites find that a better way of managing and controlling uh, modern societies. Uh, they work out by the end of the 19th century that the old way of doing it through the church and the traditional forms of government that aristocratic monarchies had no longer works. And so I think that actually the move to a more democratic politics is a top-down phenomenon ultimately. Even though there is obviously popular pressure, I don't think that's the main motive force.
that's really, really interesting. Like that's that's exactly counterintuitive to the way I once want to say something that's not necessarily like like for example, I'm not a, I'm not nearly as educated in politics and economics as you are, and that's something that from my perspective, it's actually we're almost falling for it, right? Because we're we're falling for the idea that these types of changes happen because we have more political agency, whereas yeah. the type of control that's exacted by the things that people are kind of like leaning towards or insinuating today. Uh, which is in the media or, or other type of formats, is actually that top-down pressure in terms of how these uh, government, in, like government interventionist type of policies take. So that's 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 really really cool. Yeah, I, th I think what what you find is that historically, basically, um, the people who are in charge, the ruling elite, if you will, or the ruling class, if you want to use that language, they are the people who are mostly determine what happens. Now, the way that popular pressure works is that it puts limits on what. The rulers can get away with there are some things they would dearly like to do but they can't do because if they push that too far they get a peasant revolt basically mm -hmm. um and which is you know unpleasant for everybody so they know there are certain things they can't get away with but i think it's the ruling elites the power elites they are the ones with agency and so most of the things that happen happen because of intra-elite um com competition and conflicts because Although I talked about a ruling class a moment ago, it's not a homogeneous bunch of people who agree about everything. On the contrary, ruling elites are always deeply internally divided. They share a common interest in keeping the show on the road and keeping themselves in the position to which they would, you know, are accustomed, but they disagree about a lot of things and they often have quite serious conflicts of interest. And it's those conflicts that really produce a lot of what we call politics. Now, I mean, I don't claim to be originator of this. This is a common idea amongst historians. So Maurice Cowling, for example, the late Maurice Cowling, famous British historian, one of his books was called The Rise of Labour. And if you read that book, uh, it's all about how the Labour Party came to be one of the two dominant parties of the state, the rise of organised labour in British politics. But he very much takes what I've just set out, the high politics view of this process, that it was mainly driven by disagreements and uh, um, divisions within the dominant ruling class and some a part of it in Kalnick's argument made the decision that they needed to uh, incorporate certain elements of organized labor into the decision-making process in order to keep the show on the road and pursue ends that they themselves had and i think that's what's happening this is what's happening in the united states by the way the really big political division in the united states right now is not actually a division between uh, elites and rebellious crowds uh, it's within the elite, and what you have is two different factions of the elite, both of whom are deliberately motivating and employing popular insurgencies against each other, which I think is deeply short-sighted, by the way. That does not end well for political classes that do this kind of stuff, but that, I think, is what is actually going on. And it's also deeply not in the interest of the actual people. Um, I mean, if, if generally, if you had a ruling elite and you had, you know, the peasantry that kind of rise up to it, they generally rise up on, on situations that the ruling elite is kind of being oppressive towards them. Uh, yeah. Whereas now in this case, you have the elite split. So they're fighting short-sighted against each other for short-sighted gains. And that's yeah, something that we're definitely seeing yeah. in terms of what people's it, political... They're behaving like a bunch of spoiled children. I mean, I think right. the, re the reason for this... Uh, and the reason why it's particularly acute in the United States is elite overproduction. Basically, you have too many people who are qualified for elite positions. And so there's an increasingly intense competition within the elite class 
for the, the, the good positions in, in the economy and politics and the like. And this is a recurring problem, by the way. Back in the Middle Ages, uh, one of the big problems was that periodically too many aristocratic children survived. And the result was you ended up with lots of unemployable young warrior knights who you know, basically were roaming around causing trouble. And if that happened, what the king had to do was to have a bit of a war to kill off a lot of these uh, you know, underemployed aristocrats, basically. You had the same problem, uh, you know, with too many clerics being produced and too many law graduates in the 17th century, and it led to a civil war. So elite overproduction is always a really, really bad uh, sign. And that's what we've got in the United States at the moment, because largely because the huge expansion of higher education, if you have way too many uh, graduates for the number of jobs that they're actually asked them to do, and this is causing increasingly intense competition. Right, yeah. Um, bringing it back to uh, political alignment, um, you said in some of the other interviews, and also you've mentioned it today, that you know the thing that builds up towards a political realignment is usually two parties uh, regarding certain very specific issues. It builds up to a point uh, over you know a couple of political elections, political years, where it becomes the major talking point between two parties. And then that causes a political realignment. And then usually, as you've mentioned in, in other podcasts, uh, the loser then kind of fades away and then the winner holds that political uh, position or you know ideology or so they go on forward with it until the issues with that rise again and then you have another political alignment over the course of you know 40 to, to you know 60 years or whatever the question that i have is mostly in history we've had a situation where that's that argument has held true it's like you you have that build up you have the competition the one loses it falls away the other one goes on forward nowadays we're seeing the losers actually not really lose in terms of you know political attention and running again for future positions. I think I read something today which actually said that Donald Trump's planning on running again in 2024, mm. I think. So, you know, you have this type of scenario where the losers can't really lose anymore because they don't drop from the limelight. They don't drop from the, the political discussion. Uh, platforms like social media allow the losers to keep their voice going and, you know, could end up to be remaining there quite for quite some time um could there be could that be a unique situation today or do you think there, that's a case for other ones in the past we just haven't realized it quite as much no I, I don't think so you see that's to misunderstand what what i mean by saying there's a political realignment because okay. it isn't to do with the outcome of elections as such um when you what what it what it is is, is a question rather what are the questions that the politicians are actually arguing about and so I mentioned that in mid 19th century Britain, what the politicians are constantly arguing about, the public generally is constantly arguing about, is amongst other things, the question of what the relationship should be between the Anglican church and the state. And so as a result, people are obsessed from our point of view with questions like what kind of clothes should Anglican clergymen wear when they conduct a service? Because that's part of the division between the ritualists and the low church people in the Church of England. And Suddenly, in the 1880s, this just stopped being an argument. People, it's not, people just stopped caring about it. Now, why do they stop caring about it? Well, people only care about a particular political issue because it's something that is salient to them. It's something that has a bearing on their everyday life, and therefore it matters to them. And in other words, therefore, the saliency of a particular issue in politics is determined by um, underlying conflicts of interest within society, which in turn derive from the way the economy is organized. So it's a it's a, a materialist explanation that I have for this ultimately. Now, 
what happens at the moment, what has happened at the moment is that the economic division in society is still there. You still have a division between the 1%, whatever you want to call them, the, the people who are doing well out of the current world economy, it's actually the top 30% rather than the top 1%, and the bottom 20% who are feeling hard done by in various ways. And there's also the problem, as I said, of you know, elite overproduction, people who think they ought to be in the 30% because their parents were, but increasingly they're not. Uh, but that, that issue is going to keep on recurring. So Donald Trump, the fact that he lost the election doesn't affect the fact that the concerns and issues of the people who are not part of the globalized knowledge economy are still something they feel very strong about. And so therefore his kind of politics is going to continue. Uh, now, where, to go to your point, would social media and the kind of existence of a media environment where you can keep ideas going around for a long time, would that slow down change only if there are still people who care about a particular issue and that issue no longer being discussed by the political structure uh, means that they can keep it going as a kind of thing that they're agitated by in a private forum. But my answer to that is that if that is the case, then it's going to be addressed by the political process anyway. So when you get a realignment, it's just that certain issues become either much, much less important than they were before, or they even just drop out of debate entirely. Nobody gives a monkeys now about whether or not the Church of England is disestablished. Nobody's cared about that since the 1920s. Uh, and so that is what is happening. And at the moment, what is happening is that the economic issues continue, but they are being supplanted as the major issue. And this is part of what I was saying with Dave Rubin in the interview you alluded to at the top of the show. Um, they're being supplanted as the major issue by a whole series of questions about identity and essentially about the conflict between globalism and nationalism. And you can see this in South Africa. I mean, one of the big, I do know that one of the things you've got in South Africa is a lot of agitation and complaints about um, immigration into South Africa from places like Zimbabwe and other states to the north of uh, South Africa. And similarly in Nigeria, you have the same problem. Like lots of really quite violent protests in Nigeria the last few years about migration from places like the Ivory Coast and Upper Volta and other states, the north of uh, Nigeria into uh, the southern parts of Nigeria. Uh, and that's a reflection of this conflict between a globalized labor and trade market on the one hand, and on the other hand, people not liking uh, things changing around because lots of people moving around the planet looking for work. Now that's increasingly the big issue. It has an economic aspect, obviously, but it's more about identity. And that's what is now the big, the big question people are arguing about. So yeah, the fact that one side in an alignment or an emerging new alignment loses an election doesn't alter the fact that it's the issue that remains even if one side has lost the argument for the time being. Eventually what happens over about 30, 40 years is that a consensus emerges. What happens is that eventually the po politics has a tendency to converge on a modus vivendi, a center, if you will, common ground. Uh, that's its job really as a process. And so what happens over about 30 to 40 year period is that within a given alignment is that on the big dividing issue, you do start to get a kind of consensus. And it's at that point that the issue has become exhausted 
And what tends to happen then is that a new issue will appear and people will start to argue about that. But within that period of 30, 40 years, you have lots of people winning, you have lots of people losing, there's ups and downs for the two sides of the disagreement. Uh, but the fact is, you said, the losers don't go away, they never have done, you know. So, so I don't think that social media make any difference to the way realignments or alignments work. Okay, that's that's really enlightening. It's also quite, I want to almost say, encouraging uh, from from you know a, a voter's perspective, because mm. that means that the issues that we actually care about, the ones we actually talk about after we've done talking about how ridiculous you know political opponent X is for whatever identity reason, yeah, yeah. those are the ones that actually you know carry through in terms of what discussion yeah, is being. Um, uh, on that line, I want to ask, um, we have a situation, obviously, in, in the world with the USA, that identity politics um, is so very much portrayed in the front line of how the politics is, is, is situated. But it's not the idea that I personally get about the UK. Like the UK has always had something where the big problem, or rather, let's say the big um, a political divide for the past couple of years have obviously been Brexit, right? Mm. And the discussion around how it should be handled and who's who's voted for, what referendums are being had and what political discussions had have generally um, driven around this issue, which affects everybody in the UK. So mm. the issue there still remained at hand. And now that, you know, that I don't want to say it's passed because it's definitely still being dealt with today. But now that that uh, situation has been exhausted, do you see a new type of um, political topic or importance thing that affects the different everyday people in the UK being the new uh, argument for political alignment? Now, now what, the thing to realize is this. Uh, the Brexit, I mean, actually, I, I should do a plug here because I have got a book uh, which came out last year called The Economics and Politics of Brexit, which explains what my realignment theory is and how you can use it to understand Brexit. So Brexit was caused by the realignment because the shift away from economics as the big dividing issue to identity was what, amongst other things, led to the growth of UKIP which in turn led David Cameron to make his promise of a referendum and go through on that promise. And which in turn, because of the astuteness of the Leave campaign's leaders led to the vote to leave the EU in 2016. And it also then explained the reason why uh, we had such a total, uh, as the Scots say, a complete stramash um, over the next couple of years, uh, trying to work out what to do. Now, the point is, yes, that, that particular issue is now resolved because we've left the EU, we've left on a certain agreed terms, and you know that's it. And whether you think it's good or bad, we're going to go in with this position we're in going forward. But uh, the division that, that Brexit, if you like, reveals, revealed, not caused, is still there. Now, what is that division? Well, if you look at the voting pattern, for example, in the Brexit referendum, leave aside Scotland for the moment, um, in England and Wales, uh, London voted Remain by 76%. On the other hand, places like South Wales, uh, the northeast of England, South Yorkshire, West Yorkshire, large parts of West Midlands, they voted Leave by an equally lopsided margin. And that is now the political division in the country because those votes for Brexit reflected very different political positions with regard to this contemporary issue of identity. And what the Conservative Party chose to do when it made Boris Johnson its leader was to 
put itself very firmly on one side of this new divide, the nationalist side, if you will, as opposed to the globalist cosmopolitan one. And what this has resulted in is that the Conservative Party has just abandoned its commitment to free markets in the way that it had it before. It's not a socialist party, but it's definitely not a Thatcherite free market party in the way that it was uh, you know, a few, even a few years ago under, say, David Cameron. Uh, and so the Labour Party is now left rather baffled because the, the Chancellor is talking, in a, you know, tomorrow he's going to put up business taxes uh, in order to deal and what to do what? To fund a major programme of state investment in green technology. Now, uh, at this point, people are thinking, my God, you know, what is happening here? The Conservative Party suddenly become, you know, we're in a bizarro world where the Tory party has become something that it's been totally against. This should not surprise you. This is, this is what the Tory party has done several times in its history. The Tory party is the most successful political party in any democratic country, unless you possibly count the Liberal Democrats in Japan. Apart from them, nobody, no party has such a record of sustained success over such a long period. How do they do this? Well, they're like Doctor Who. You know, if you see Doctor Who, every so often, the Doctor undergoes a regeneration and he comes out looking completely different, maybe even his gender changes in the last one, and he's got a, a totally different like demeanor and so on. And yet somehow, somehow he's still the doctor yeah. now that's what the tory party is like every so often it undergoes a radical change it goes from being a protectionist party to a free trade party and then it suddenly goes back to being a protectionist party again uh it suddenly goes from being a party place affair to being a party of a certain kind of state intervention and then it goes back again uh, it just does whatever it takes to win elections because that's the basic goal. The basic goal is to preserve the status quo by being in power, partly in order to keep the other lot out, uh, and also to maintain a monopoly position on one side of politics. And so that's what the Tory party has done. And so what we're seeing at the moment is that those divisions of Brexit are still very much there. That's why the Conservatives won a ton of seats in the north of England at the last election, many of which had never voted Conservative in their entire existence until this last election, because we've seen this realignment around this new issue of identity. And so it's going to persist. That's that's the best possible analogy I could have ever heard for that scenario, because it really is almost like the Tory party is an entity of itself that's fighting for survival more than anything else. Like it, it adjusts what it needs to do in order to continue existing. Um, and it's extremely good at that. Um, if you as an historian can see this, do you think then that if other people see this, that they'll you know, they'll realize this and then realize, okay, you're not really fighting necessarily for what we believe in or what we care about, even though they're, they're addressing the issue that's the most popular at the moment. Um, but, you know, they could perhaps turn against that, that, that they almost want to say yeah. in a turncoat scenario? Yeah, some will, absolutely. I mean, the point is this, um, the, the people at the top of the Conservative Party, uh, I think made a pretty conscious decision when they chose Boris Johnson to be their leader and PM. Mm that they were going to run the risk of losing a significant number of middle-class professional voters in the southeast of England, who were broadly on one side of the new divide, in order to get 
a certain number of older working class voters in other parts of England who were on the other side. Now, as it happened, they had a perfect, they had a Goldilocks outcome. They got all those new working class voters in the north of England, but they didn't lose that many of their middle class professional voters in the southeast because of Jeremy Corbyn, basically. If the Labour Party had had any other leader, they probably would have lost about 20 or 30 seats in the southeast. So they were still on a majority, but it would have been a smaller majority. But because it was Corbyn, those middle class people who really didn't like Leave and who didn't like Boris Johnson still voted Conservative because they just couldn't tolerate the idea of Jeremy Corbyn becoming Prime Minister or anything like it, uh, near it rather. So um, in the future, I think, yes, they will. I think what will happen going forward once the Labour Party gets its act together um, is that the Conservative Party will become an increasingly plebeian party, working class party, and it will gain support in the north of England uh, and continue to be the dominant party in the rural parts of the country, but it will lose a lot of suburban voters in the southeast and, uh, and in London. It's been going backwards in London for about 10 years anyway. Now, this is the pattern you see in the United States as well. Uh, what is going to happen? What is happening there now? The reason, one of the reasons why Joe Biden won the election is because he did even better than Hillary Clinton did among suburban white voters. Uh, and those people have basically abandoned the Republican Party, in my view, uh, given what happened on, you know, the 6th of January and all the rest of it. Yeah. And subsequently, at the same time, crucially, Biden was able to win back a small number of blue collar voters in the so-called blue walls states, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, not enough in Ohio, but enough in the other states. Uh, I doubt an, if another Democrat would have done it. Now, going forward, uh, the Republican, that pattern is likely to persist. So the Republicans are going to go backward in large metropolitan areas, which means that states like uh, Georgia are going to move solidly into the Democrat column, as is Arizona. Texas is going to come into play. But on the other hand, they're likely to, if they play their cards right, uh, regain ground that Trump lost in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, because they'll still they'll expand their appeal to uh, working class voters. So, yes, this is this is what this is what is going to happen. Mm -hmm. Pivoting over to um, your current position as head of head of education at IEA, um, you and also as an historian, uh, you're particularly knowledgeable about the history of education and the forms that it takes. Mm -hmm. um, we're currently in a situation which I don't even know. I'm, 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 definitely, I'm definitely sure a ton of academics know this quite well, but in terms of people that not, aren't necessarily as well versed in, in, in history, they don't actually know that we're kind of dominated by a Prussian German uh, origin for this or for the, you know, this, the state education and, and the way that our state education is run. Um, how do you think it ended up uh, at this present day dominance, uh, this, this, uh, this Prussian German origination in our state education? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about that. Um, I should say right at the start, that I have very radical and extreme views about this. Um, I'm an Ivan Illich, Paul Goodman, John Holt person when it comes to educational theory and so on. The key thing to say is this, it's not education so much as schooling that comes from the Prussian model. And one of the key insights I think that I've got from people like Ivan Illich or John Holt is that schooling is not the same thing as education. Education is something which, like any sane person, I think is a good thing. 
but schooling is a particular way of delivering education and they are not the same thing. Now, the school, as we understand it, is created by, as you say, by the Prussians. It's created by the Prussian government as part of the so-called Stein reforms, named after the man who was responsible for them, that took place in Prussia after they got their butts kicked by Napoleon at the Battle of Jena in 1806. And uh, what it, before then, you had schools, but they were very different from the model that the Prussians created. So what is that model? Well, essentially, it's the idea that, first of all, everybody goes to school, that when you go to school, you are taught in year groups where everyone of the same age is taught together. Previously, that had not been the case. Previously, people had been taught in groups determined by their degree of attainment in a particular subject. So although initially everyone would be the same age, they very rapidly got sorted out. And a typical class in an 18th or 17th century school would have people who were, you know, several, five, as much as five or six years different in age, but they were at the same level of achievement in whatever the subject was. Whereas what the Prussians introduce is the idea that you are taught with the same age group and you stay in that age group throughout your time in school. And the Prussians also introduce the modern physical structure of the school, the one we're familiar with, where you have separate distinct classrooms, which you go from for different classes and where you're, you're taught in rows facing a, a teacher who stands in front of you and gives you uh, the class. Uh, plus lots of other stuff like formal exams uh, and formal modes of assessment throughout throughout the year. Um, this is all part of the Prussian system. Now, why did the Prussians do it? Well, it's because they wanted to create loyal subjects and citizens, productive workers and obedient soldiers. That's the reason for teaching people in year groups, because um, if you're one of the big problems that soldiers have faced throughout history is that you're, if you're in battle, the rational and sensible thing to do as an individual is to run away. Uh, the problem is that that's catastrophic for the army as a whole, because once one person runs, everybody does. And the one person, the guy who does it first, he will probably get away, but everyone else is dead. Uh, and so what you want is to have something which will keep people together and not make them do that. And what has been discovered over the centuries, over every game, is that the key thing to that is esprit de corps. You do not run because you don't want to let down the, the guy you're stood next to because he's your mate. Uh, and how do you do that? Well, what you do in the Prussian model is you bring up people together in school, and then having left school, they all go into the army because they also introduce conscription. And as you're all in the army together, you're in the army with the guys you've spent all your childhood years with at school together. Uh, you may not like them personally, but you have a bond with them. So that's why they do it. Now, this is an extremely um, rigid form of uh, education, and it doesn't really uh, work for anything other than very, very elementary education. In fact, once you get past about the age of eight or nine, or even earlier, um, it's a minor miracle that any actual real education takes place in an institution of this sort. But that's not the point of it. The point of it, as I say, is to produce productive and obedient worker bees and soldiers and citizens. Uh, it's, social, it's all about social indoctrination and control, basically. And it, it, what it has acquired in the modern age is an additional function, which is that of sorting people out into categories 
and assigning what you might call tickets, certificates to certain people who then use those certificates as a means of getting into the lottery for a high paid or high status job, yeah. which is an incredibly destructive system and one that I, I hate intensely. And this whole system, why does it catch on? Well, because it suits the interests of all sorts of people. Um, it suits the interests of factory owners because it produces obedient workers who will do what they're told um, and who will work the kind of long, boring, repetitive uh, kind of work that's needed to make a factory system work. It suits states because it produces loyal subjects and states can use uh, the system in order to indoctrinate their citizens into loyalty to the state. In particular, it makes it possible to create national states uh, so in France, for example, before 18, in 1870, uh, more than 50% of the population of France did not speak what we call French. They spoke either other languages, Breton or German or Basque, or they spoke a local patois, which were mutually incomprehensible. Uh, by 1914, 90% of French spoke French. And that's because of mass education brought in by the Third Republic, where teaching everybody the same language and the same history and the same kind of vision of what it was to be part of La France, that was all part of the project. So that's why this system became adopted. It served the ends of supporting the modern state and also supporting a lot of modern business, it has to be said. And so it suits both you know kind of interests in modern society and that's why we have it yeah well the system that indoctrinates those students are still the is still the very same system that benefits from a lot of things that you've now described especially i'm going to say like loyal students that you know almost almost want to say that i mean it's a bit of a stretch really but if you think about it the idea that they create good worker bees and loyal soldiers is also a concept that promotes a form of nationalism at the yeah. point at which they graduate that interests them so for people to really care about their country and continue voting the people that are in power or care about the things that are going on here the nationalistic perspective the education system works perfectly for that but yeah. i mean it also creates you know, so many other problems in today's day and age, which we'd, as you know, I'm going to say progressive Western societies would think we'd like to be addressing, which is that people, people learn at, you know, different rates, um, you know, that people are specialized in different roles, that people have a freedom of choice of what they want to do, you know, that type of thing is the values that we stand for. And yet the education system almost actively works against that. Yeah. I could put it better myself. Uh, right. uh, what I'd add to that is that, um, no, no, if you really want to teach people a subject like mathematics or engineering or a foreign language, any subject actually, the way we do it is the last way you would do it. Uh, you can't design a system that is more likely to you know, mess up the process of true education. Uh, and this is shown by the fact that whenever we want to teach people something where it really matters, like how to drive a car, for example, how to speak a foreign language, uh, you use a totally different method, which is short, intense immersion. So if you want to speak a foreign language, you go to a Berlitz school, you spend three or four months teaching it, typically by immersion. You do not do two hours twice a week for 10 years and come out at the end of it knowing bugger all, which is what we do have. 
yeah, yeah, no, that's that's something that you know, having recently went through university, I recently attained my master's. That's something, and I'm now working in education. That's something so incredibly frustrating to me because, for example, I had two years of Isikosa, that we use the language we speak here in South Africa, and I can't speak a, a word of it because the system is exactly as you now describe. Um, so a lot of this, a lot of people are really recognizing this, especially educated people that have a background in you know building themselves up that are successful entrepreneurs or, or you know successful people today, and they're putting their children in private schools because private schools have this type of freedom that they can loosen these type of rules. They still have a classic school system, but they can loosen these rules to more suit what the individual needs of the students and that allows them to excel. So we have a scenario where almost every successful person that has the money to do it, put their children into a private school. And that's solving the problems of education. But it is creating a scenario where these people that are more likely to succeed because of a better education system is the people that come from almost want to say, you know, going back to an aristocratic background where the people that have success breed success yeah. by instituting better systems. Do you feel like the private schooling system is something that's even possible to be implemented in a larger scale to solve the education problem? Or do you think that this is something that just continue? Well, uh, it should, it, it, you should be able to tell from what I've just said that what I don't think is a, we need is a private schooling system because it's still a schooling yeah. system. Now, what has happened, what you've described is the uh, contemporary main function of the education system, which is these days is to certify people so that they get access to high paying, high status job. Yeah. Uh, we live in this meritocratic system. Uh, and I think meritocracy is one of the worst ideas ever, basically. And what it does is, as you say, it preserves privilege because it means that the people who do well send their children to um, schools which are of higher quality, more flexible than the major general state schools. That means they then get the certificates, which means that they get the better chance at the high paid, high status jobs. Mm. In addition to this, they are, the people who go through this process the elite created by it are incredibly smug and self-satisfied because they believe in the meritocratic idea and they think, oh, this show up. I'm where I am because I merit it. It works, obviously. Yeah, I deserve it. <laughs> Meanwhile, the people down who have failed in the system, failed in quotes, uh, because the deck is stacked against them in many cases, uh, they feel both resentful and disgruntled, but also bad about themselves because they feel they're failures. Uh, now that that's extremely destructive, um, but it, even and also finally, it's still schooling. You've still got the kind of institution I described with the year group teaching and all the rest of it. What we need is something much more radical, which is to move towards a system of education which uses different modes of delivery. Now, I think that the case probably is hopeless in countries like places like North America, Western Europe, um, because or indeed parts of East Asia as well, because uh, the system is so entrenched. However, I think actually that Africa uh, and also South Asia and parts of East Asia are seeing a different way because in large parts of Africa, you've got the development of lots and lots of low cost private schools. And increasingly, these are working in ways that are not like conventional schooling. They're a different kind of educational establishment and institution. Now they're doing this, not because they're driven by educational theory. They've not all read Paolo Freire or something like that. Um, what they're doing is doing it for profit maximizing reasons because it's simply a more efficient way of delivering a product that people will pay for. And so you're also seeing this with homeschooling movements in the United States. 
this has now become so widespread that it's no longer really homeschooling. What happens is that lots and lots of parents will take their kids to learning centres, but the whole way the system works is not like conventional schooling. Uh, you'll have the kind of process I described where you'll basically do nothing but a subject for, say, two or three months, and then six months later you'll have a refresher to fix the memory in your mind. You won't have this nonsense of sitting at desks uh, and doing you know, a bit of this, then a bit of that, then a bit of something else in the course of a day. So I think that that kind of process uh, is happening and it will ultimately transform the educational system, not least because modern technology makes it a lot easier. Uh, but there's two big problems. One in the wealthy countries is an enormous amount of fixed investment in the existing way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, this is one of several areas where I think Africa is going to leap ahead of Western Europe and North America, just like mobile telephony, because it doesn't have all that sunk investment in the traditional form of schooling. Uh, so I think African societies are going to actually benefit enormously in the longer run from that fact, because they won't have to write off a ton of practice and capital. Uh, they can move directly to a much more flexible, open system of education and learning. Uh, and it's one of many reasons why I'm very bullish about the future of the African continent at the moment. Mm, yeah, no, it's 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 exciting for us. I mean, at the moment, we're still seeing that a lot of this um, the, the 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 privatization of education um, is is still a barrier to which is creating a divide between the, the have and the have nots. Yeah, but in terms of those things, you'd almost want to say in in classical private. Uh, business enterprise, generally what happens is there's a more expensive class of production and research development that's being put into a product. And once that has been standardized, it becomes cheaper and that makes it more accessible. You see this in cars and all other type of products. Yeah. So the hope is, or, or rather uh, your point of view that I also want to support here is a, the, the optimistic view here is that once this you know has been figured out and privatized in the, in the high, high class system, it'll be able to be implemented in the lower ones. It's going to be even like, more than that, actually. I mean, the, the, yeah. the classic example would be Henry Ford. Uh, two things about Ford. One is you can always ask yourself who made more money out of the motor car, uh, the guys who made Rolls Royce or Ford. Uh, you know that's how capitalism works. You 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 make really big profits by selling uh, reasonable quality but cheap products to the masses, not high quality products to the elite. But also Ford is supposed to have said, well, if I listened to what people said they wanted, I would have made a faster horse. Uh, and what he did was he actually, of course, produced something completely different. And it wasn't even like the traditional motor car um, in terms of its construction, uh, the traditional motor car of his time, I mean, uh, in terms of its construction. So it's the same with education. What you need is an entrepreneur, a Ford of education, if you will, who will think, well, OK, what is it that my clients want? But really, I, I think that what I can give them is something which is going to give them what they want, but in a totally different way. To what it's been before. It won't be a faster horse, i.e. a cheaper school of the conventional kind. It will be something quite different. You can see the same thing happening with uh, healthcare, by the way. Um, there's revol a revolution in the way healthcare is delivered, taking place particularly in India and China, uh, but also increasingly in parts of Africa. And this is uh, being driven by, um, you know, again, private sector entrepreneurs, particularly in India. And it's, it's a major move away from the hospital as the main way of delivering healthcare, basically, to a completely different decentralized model. And something similar, I think, is going to happen in education. And, and also the driving force for what that happens, at least what we're seeing in the moment, is that technology is kind of 
being the the factor that allows it to be more popular distributed it, it's it's almost a forcing a way of forcing a very standard set status quo especially by the pandemic for the past I almost want to say it's it's year now but it's feel like it's going to be yeah. past two years uh you know it's it's kind of forcing this type of change on people to adjust it and then in that regard technology is kind of doing the job for them it's forcing the change for them yeah. um, and also people with different like opinions that they can talk about you know for example we talked about at the start of the of the of the um the podcast about libertarianism it's also doing the job there in terms of getting the discussion going allowing not mm-hmm. you know people to be uh, manipulated as easily as they were by the church you know 100 200 years ago for example so do you think in this regard you know is, is is it going to to matter is the matter of like of, of education and healthcare is the future of that really going to matter if it's all under the control of the state or private sector by means of technology like a robot does the surgeries or you drink pills that cure your illness or you know it's an ai that produces predefined education uh you know videos format which is pretty much what we're having with youtube at the moment and people teach themselves that way well I think that technology is neutral, actually. I, I, I'm skeptical of these arguments that uh, technology of, of themselves are inherently libertarian or authoritarian. I think that most, te- I take the David Friedman view that most technologies can cut both ways. It's a question of which way you do it. So, for example, um, there's things like, on the one hand, there's pretty good privacy and other packages like that that enable you to keep things secret. On the other hand, uh, a lot of the new software allows the government to spy on us more than, I don't know, for that matter, private companies to spy on us more than uh, we would like to be the case. So technologies really can work one way or the other. So some of the technologies, uh, like the ones you mentioned, are being used and can be used in order to weaken the control of governments, weaken the scope of political power, and to increase voluntary activity in society and you know, spontaneous order, if you will. But on the other hand, the same technologies in many cases can be used by the state to uh, do all kinds of things that a lot of people would not welcome, not just libertarians. Uh, and so it's a question of what we do with them. So it ultimately does come down to human volition. I'm, I'm not a big fan of, I do think that technology is a hugely important force in driving uh, political, social, cultural, economic change. But I don't think technology is completely autonomous. Um, it's the use that human beings make of the technology that ultimately determines what its effect will be. Uh, and you know, like the classic example, the Greeks had a steam engine, but they used it to make toys yeah. and that kind of thing. Uh, so th- that's why I, I'm both optimistic and pessimistic at the same time about technology. I really like that perspective because it is, it, it, it puts technology in the role of a catalyst it's like whichever how people are going to use it technology allows it to happen faster and yeah, you know exactly. more effectively exactly and i think that also what, what's happened with the pandemic which you mentioned is right. that what pandemics do I've, I've broadcast about this a couple of times is to speed things up they very seldom actually change things but pandemics or other major natural disasters accelerate things that were already happening and what's that technology is a case in point because i think that things like working from home doing stuff like we're doing now on zoom this was beginning to happen before the pandemic but what the pandemic has done is to make people realize just how much they can do it and they've been forced by the pandemic to experiment yeah. and uh, you know apply some ways they might not otherwise have done yeah yeah um i just want to lastly ask you about uh, a question that's more centered around um libertarianism specifically um 
as a classic liberal, uh, or rather, you know, libertarian as we know today, but classic liberal in its official or its practical sense, what is your opinion on the freedom of movement? Like this, this is a very, very, very uh, talked about and very centric argument to a lot of political campaigns that's going on in, in many countries today. You know, some argue having the freedom of movement would lead to, you know, jobs being stolen, like the, the classic immigration argument. And, you know, Im immigrants will bring their voting patterns, like we see, for example, Californians are, or, or rather not as many of them, but we see a, a trend of Californians, especially big um, business people, moving from California to Texas, for example, mm. uh, or some South Korean politicians fearing that Korean unification because you know, they're afraid of the political perspective or the, or the movement that would cause from North Korea to South Korea, uh, which yep. might be more, you know, economically alive. You know, what, what do you feel about the, the freedom of movement and how it affects things there? Do you think it'll just sort itself out if we allow freedom of to happen? Well, uh, lots of people wouldn't like it, but I mean, straightforwardly, I'm 100% in favor of open borders, completely open borders. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what I would say in that, in that connection is this, <laughs> quite simply this. First of all, uh, philosophically, economically, there is no difference between moving within a country and moving across a geopolitical border. There is no difference between moving from, let's say, uh, rural Transvaal to Cape Town and moving from another country into, uh, you know, uh, Johannesburg, Greater Johannesburg and the Rand. It's exactly the same thing economically. It's just that one takes place within a geopolitical border. Secondly, historically, liberals classic liberals favored free movement totally free movement that was one of their major campaigns and the reason was that in the ancien regime uh, of the 18th much of the 19th century most people were not free to move where they wanted if you most people required an internal passport to travel around this is still the case in china at least in theory i mean practice is not so much but in theory it still is the hoku system which goes right back to the foundation of the chinese state under the han dynasty in the uh, first century bc so the the idea that we have freedom moved inside the country is actually very modern and until 1914, however, we had a kind of 100-year period between roughly 1815 and 1914, where you had, thanks to liberals, both free movement within countries and free movement across borders. In 1914, there were only two countries in Europe that required a passport for you to enter them. That was the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire. And everybody else thought this was a sign of how backward they were. Uh, unfortunately, for various reasons, various interests, use the excuse of the Great War to impose the border controls, all the bloody nonsense that goes with them, that we are familiar with today. Uh, now, I think that the world is moving in a direction which is radically undermining and challenging border controls, not least the fact that the world economy is moving uh, away from national economies to a networked, interlinked economy where the world economy really consists not of nations, but of about 2000 city regions, regions like uh, it makes more sense to think, talk, for example, about the Guateng economy than the South African economy or the Nairobi economy than the Kenyan economy. Uh, and Nairobi has got closer connections with, say, Mumbai than it does with rural northwest Kenya by various metrics. And so we're moving into a world where the, the borders no longer make sense. Now, a lot of people are desperate for various reasons, mainly just resistance to change, in my view, uh, to try and keep those borders going. But I think that it's just as in the 19th century, it's a it's, it's a losing battle.
Mm. It's a battle where I'm definitely on one side of it. I, you know, I'm like I say, I'm a hundred percent an open borders man. Uh, nativism is the work of Satan. <laughs> yeah, and also I would just say, you know, from my perspective, and please, it'd be very cool if you could comment on this. I feel like the freedom of movement is a driving force, a motivation for all different type of areas, cities or rural areas to improve their situation to be of the best possible benefit for their citizens as it could be. In other words, if you make a place that's nice to live and you want to work at, you want to thrive in, then people will come there. That's a, that's a natural progression. That's the reason why North Koreans would move to South Korea, for example, if the unification ever happened. And that the, the resistance of allowing freedom of movement from one country to another is actually just supporting mediocrity in the sense that we're making it difficult for you to move and that's why you'll stay here. And people that feel like they won't be able to rise up to the challenge and improve the situation and make it a nice place to live in or a nice place to work at want that control because it allows them to be lazy. Yeah, right? I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the other factor that leads to support for controls of movement is people who don't like change. I mean, which is a, a common human sentiment. I mean, a lot of people do not like seeing the place that where they've grown up in suddenly changing because a lot of new people come in there. But you're quite right. The point is that cities in particular these days are competing with each other for hard-working, talented, enterprising people. And as you say, you try to make yourself attractive to these people. I do think that in the longer run, uh, the city-state may well become one of the more important forms of governance in the, in the modern world. Singapore is a kind of model in that regard, yeah. I think. Uh, but it's not just that. You can see all over the world metropolitan governance emerging as a major form of government structure. And one of the reasons is because the local authorities, the people in the cities, they know they need some kind of effective structure so they can attract in the capital, the people, uh, the ideas, the creative class that Richard Florida is talking about uh, to be more successful. Uh, and long may this continue. Mm. No, we're, uh, we're very, you know, dragging out this last question. I just lastly want to ask you, you know, if you have this type of scenario where city states become, I mean, it's already a fact, really, it's, it's not really to be debated much, but city states already have a lot more influence than necessarily the country as a whole in terms of the differences between the cities and the rural areas. Do you think that this type of uh, situation where if freedom, more freedom of movement is given, if more, you know, agency is given to the different areas individually rather than, the, than their agency as a country, that you'll have a situation where the people vie for more local autonomy than necessarily a centralized state? Because, I mean, if, 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 if your city is, is the one where, you know, you are, are governing about, you want to invite people to your city more than you want to invite people to your country, then that's promoting local autonomy, right? Yes, I think so. And I think that uh, the obviously the central, the people who control the central state or who benefit from the central state, uh, which includes all kinds of interests, are going to be very unhappy about this. They don't want to see uh, decentralization of this kind. But I think that there's, there's lots of evidence that uh, decentralization, breaking down large units, is the way to go by a number of very mundane criteria, never mind human liberty, just straightforward efficiency. Um, there's, you know, there's work, empirical work done by economists, which shows that the optimal size of a country, a, a political unit, in terms of things like the quality of politics, the quality of governance, is about one to six million. And so major metropolitan areas typically are in that sweet spot, whereas very large you know, countries like, say, Nigeria or the United States or, you know, Britain for that matter, that uh, they're well above that, that limit. Uh, and so, yes, it's uh, uh, decentralizing, breaking down large political units into smaller ones 
and relying upon networks rather than top-down hierarchical uh, pyramids of power, if you will, is definitely the way to go for all sorts of practical and pragmatic reasons. Lots of people won't like it, of course. There'll be lots of people who will resist that. But I, I am optimistic that they're on the losing side. Well, this has been absolutely insightful discussion. You've challenged a lot of the perspectives that I've had, and I've found it really, really, really enlightening. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I want to give you a last opportunity to plug, for example, uh, your book that you mentioned uh, before the show. Uh, yeah, there's two books I've got uh, I to mention. Um, uh, one of them is the book I mentioned during the conversation, the, the Economics and Politics of Brexit, which is published by the American Institute for Economic Research. Uh, the other one is a book I've got coming out just right now. It's come out in Britain, coming out in the United States, which is called The Streetwise Guide to the Devil. Uh, and I wanted to call it The Life and Times of Satan, but the publisher wouldn't have that. Uh, and that is a book about another interest of mine, uh, which is Old Nick himself, uh, you know, the devil, the prince of darkness. Mm. Okay, well, definitely, we'll uh, we'll have we'll provide uh, links to not only your website but also to these type of stuff in the description for anybody that's interested in that. So, I want to thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Lastly, uh, no, not at all. Apart from just thank you very much for having me on here and keep up the good work. Thank you. It's, it's been an absolute honor to talking with you. And for our viewers, if you've made it thus far in the video, you most definitely like it. If you want to share um, uh, Dr. Davies' uh, opinions and, and his perspective on the world, please, by all means, uh, like and share this video. It also obviously helps out the channel and our mission to provide people with as many diverse perspectives on how the world works as possible to continue this conversation. You know, not let, you know, liberty dies in silence, pretty much, is what we're trying to combat here. So by all means, please like and subscribe this video. And of course, uh, you know, practically in terms of doing these interviews it also requires a monetary element uh, in terms of our time and equipment that we use so you can also support us on a pl platform called patreon uh, to advance that regard so lastly just thank you so much to dr davies uh, this has been worldview thank you for watching thank you.